It's, uh, I, I'm doing well, thank you. It's lovely to see you. Where are you sitting? So, some of our neighbours have gone on holiday, but left me the keys to their house. And so I have snuck across here so that I can have a quiet recording with you, Winnie, and with our friend we're going to have later on joining us. Where, about, where are you sitting? You look very different to where I saw you last time. Yeah, we've become such good friends that I could tell you weren't at home. Um, <laughs> I am sitting in front of a new set of bookshelves in uh, at St. Luke's Church in Atlanta. Last time we spoke, you were in a completely different place. We were talking about, um, we were thinking about New York and, and now Atlanta. I mean, what was the journey like? It was a road trip. How was it? You know, so we put the dogs in the back of the car and drove them to Atlanta um, on a day before we had planned to go. And, you know, in a moment where our country is really divided and it can be frightening to imagine traveling through certain parts of the country, it was really amazing to drive through the American Southeast, um, kind of, you know, some ways put your feet back in it. And this is, you know, this is my home um, and not a place I'm willing to be afraid. So it was powerful and really powerful to come home. I have, I lived here when I was 17, which was a tough, tough year in my life. Um, and I feel like I get to revisit and try it again. I'm really grateful for that. That's amazing. And there is, um, I hear there's a bit of a migration south, isn't there? Kind of uh, black and brown people claiming something of, of their heritage there. Is that right? Do you feel part of that wave in some way? You know, I've been thinking about that because I was, I was reading um, a, a book about those migrations by Isabel Wilkerson um, and how many of us are returning. And I would never have put myself in that because my parents came in 1970, you know, they, and they came from India. Like, we're, it's not really our story in some ways, except absolutely, right? I'm back in a really diverse Atlanta that is not at all the place I left um, with a lot of families trying to figure out how to make this the America they dream of. A lot of them gathered in this church. I just walked through our homeless project today, um, and it's smart and thoughtful and compassionate and, and about making a change in the city. Um, so, yeah, I, I do feel a part of something that's happening uh, in this country, the, the, those of us fleeing the, fleeing the big cities. Yeah. Well, you know what I think? Um, I'm really excited to let you know about uh, my friend who's, who's, who's going to be visiting with us today, um, Father Jarrell Robinson Brown. And do you know, it, there was, it was an interesting way in which I got to know about him. On the 18th of January 2019, I saw this beautiful, I was doing some research for my book, and I saw this beautiful poster of all these beautiful looking black and brown people. And right in the middle was this gorgeous looking man wearing a dog collar. And he's so striking, he just lit up the whole picture. And I found this organisation, sent them an email and said, who was that clergy person? I must um, find out who they are. And on the same day, a friend of mine completely independently said, there's this incredible Methodist minister. Um, he writes a brilliant blog and he's um, a real theologian. And I would love you to, to, to meet him. So I looked him up, searched him out, and I said, I'd love to meet with you. 
and I discovered someone who was um, a deep thinker, someone who was uh, incredibly creative, uh, someone committed to the Catholicity of the church and and um, a wonderful um, black thinker, theologian and scholar. And so I'd love to introduce you to him, Winnie. Hello there. Hi. Good to see Hi. you. Good to see you. Good to... Great for you to be here with us on Gerh Race, um, G parentheses, Race. Um, Winnie, this is Jarell. Jarell, this is Winnie. It's so good to meet you. And I, Hi. I feel like we've met, but we haven't. Um, so really good to meet I you. I know, right? Yeah. You too. You too. Thank you so much for having me. It's brilliant to have you on. So what we usually do with our guests is that we say to them, describe home for us. What is home for you? However, we've got something different for you. We're going to do a quick fire round. So I'm going to give you two alternatives and I want you to to come back as quickly as you can and tell us which of the pair uh, resonates with you and maybe if you want to say a sentence or two as to why. Okay, are you ready? Go for it. Here we go. Organ or piano? Organ. (laughs) Choral or gospel? Choral, I think. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Queer or LGBTQI plus? Queer. Egyptian Coptic or Ethiopian Orthodox? Egyptian Coptic. Anglican or Methodist? Methodist. <laughs> Blog or vlog? Blog. Hymns or choruses? Hymns. Artist or activist? Activist. Ah. Mm, that was tough. That was unfair. <laughs> totally unfair. <laughs> no, Methodism will always be my mother. And organ is definitely a better instrument than piano. <laughs> so. Well, and also, so we're not asking the home question, but actually, if you'd like to answer it, um, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful way to start. Sure. Cool. cool. It's funny, I think if you had asked me that three years ago or four years ago, I would have said home is, is Ealing, is West London, is, is where Nan was, where I grew up. And now that she's not around in the, in the body anymore, kind of now she's gone to glory kind of thing, home is a very different place. So I'm not really sure in many ways. Home has had to change on many fronts. So it's kind of an honest but non-answer yeah. <laughs> response to the question is, I, I don't yeah, know, really. That's a great answer. Um, so I've been reading your book um, again, um, and I, I think I might have said this the first time, I, but I'm so struck by how you place grace as something that humans provide for one another. Um, whereas in, in the church often, you know, it's, it's something that we hope to have a little bit of access to that God offers to us. And of course, it's, it's very intentional. It's very provocative. Um, c- can you tell us how, how you landed there and how, um, tell us about it? I was thinking that, um, I think for me, that shift towards grace being something that we offer one another comes as soon as we see grace as an embodied thing and not as a theory or as a kind of theological dogma um, or doctrine. And for me, that was the real shift, I think, in my thinking was to, to not think of grace in the way in which it's often thought about, particularly by people like Augustine, I think. I mean, I, I always throw shade on Augustine. He's not completely awful. But on the grace issue, there are problems there, I think. Um, when you When you define grace as 
embodied in Jesus Christ and embodying how he lived and who he lived amongst and the choices he made, not just in terms of what he said, but where he puts his body, then I think you begin to think about grace in terms of where we put ourselves and who we align ourselves with and what we do and who we live in proximity to and, you know, um, how we share and, and communicate intimacy in the communities that we're part of. And at that point, you begin to see grace in the lives of many people and it becomes an embodied thing in, thing in which then we all participate and are able to share. And for me, that's a really important um, move, I think. And I get that really from people like Athanasius of Alexandria who says... You know, that when God created the world, he left nothing barren of his image. And when you think of that nothingness, that's everything and everyone and every community and everybody. Um, that's lovely. That's I like um, uh, when you say everybody and the listener, I know that there was a there, there was a little smile. What do you think of when you think of the term everybody? Well, literally, I think of I think of the, the you know, the range of physical bodies that live in the world and, and you know, the places that those bodies come from, the things that those bodies have experienced and are witnesses to. You know, when we trust them, we realise our bodies don't lie. And I think the one thing we're often taught to neglect is our physical embodiedness and how much that teaches us. We speak often in life about going with your gut, but we don't often kind of elaborate or unpack that. And I think actually it could save us from a lot and lead us to deeper conversations if we listen to our flesh a bit more. So I have this beautiful book on my desk, and it's just beautiful. And, I, I, it's, um, and it says, Black, Gay, British, Christian, Queer, The Church and the Famine of Grace is the title. And it, it is literally a beautiful thing, which you know isn't always the case with, with physically made things. I am struck by, among the many things, I'm struck by how these very modern categories um, that you put, put here, um, you expose through um, the church fathers, really, and mothers, and um, and the early church history. Um, t- tell us, tell us about that. Tell us about bringing those two together. Yeah, it's interesting because I didn't want to in the beginning. When I started writing the book, I had no intention of quoting any of those kind of ancient sources, and suddenly realised that. So my first kind of go-to was a lot of the stuff that was published in the states, and that was where I looked to. And I thought, you know, all of my inspiration when it comes to looking at this is people like Baldwin and Audre Lorde and. Um, Nina Simone, who was queer in her own way, in a very different kind of way, um, you know, and other people, Tony Morrison, lots of black authors, um, whether they be heterosexual or not. But I had to stop looking across the pond because, of course, it doesn't translate completely. And then the second place I began to look was to the ancient sources and realised that, you know, when you really read patristic texts for what they are, so the writings of the mothers and fathers of the church are, are elders in the faith, they're writing at such an early point that really all they're trying to do is communicate who Jesus Christ is, right? And, and what, it, what it means to live um, the, the Jesus life, the Christian life in the world. And so they're really quite untarnished by, not by everything, but by a lot of our later kind of arguments and debates. And I suddenly realised, and I go back to Athanasius again, he really was the person who, who helped me into this because his work on the incarnation is just mind-blowing. It's it just it is incredible. And I think what it does is it takes this sense of, you know, what happens in Bethlehem, not just being an important event, but being something that affects each and every person, each and every life. And Athanasius takes the event of the incarnation and completely glues that to um, everyone's human existence and the, everyone's body um, and how that relates. And so for me, then, 
I began to see actually how lots of people like Gregory of Nyssa do that, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, Julian of Norwich, which is another person who really sees Jesus in this very queer um, way. And that's, that's uh, an interesting thing for me. And I think there is something about the early um, mothers and fathers of the church um, who we have to remember were writing not for the academy, but for um, ordinary people. You know, they were writing for people pre-baptism, um, they were writing for people in their congregations. Um, and so actually, those texts have become the kind of the, the domain of the academy, but actually that wasn't their intended audience. And I think there's something really important about saying, actually, these texts belong to the queer community and they belong to the black queer community in a, in a special way as well, because a lot of these people are writing from Africa and Asia and other parts of the world that Christianity originated in. So... Oh, it's brilliant really to um, um to hear this, and I'm I'm curious um uh, for yourself, Jarrell, and also for you, Winnie. Um, how do you understand intersectionality? So, being black and brown, um, being of the queer community, um, uh, being of faith. How do those identities um play dance with one another? I think there's a lot of people have said to me, "Why didn't you write?" you know, two or three books on this topic. And I find it a really irritating question <laughs> because, um, you know, it's called what it is because all of those different phrases are part of who I am. And it would not have made sense to write two or three different books because I can't separate the black part of me from the gay part of me, from the British part of me, from the Christian part. Like, it's all one part of me. And to go back to the body, you know, I'm this person in one body, and it's not possible to kind of compartmentalise parts of me. Um, so there's a sense in which intersectionality comes quite naturally because that's the position I have in the world, that I can't think of any of these facets of my life separately. I can't compartmentalise faith from gender, from sexuality, from class, from race. They are all, for me, part of the same thing. And so as soon as I discovered what intersectionality was, I was like, ah, now I get a bit of myself better because actually that's my life that's my reality I don't know if really feels the same but it was it just made me make sense of me and isn't it interesting when that it's it's kind of the academic life that tells us or the political life or legal life that tells us that we must be compartmentalized that these categories are separate so you know intersectionality in the U.S. at least is a legal term and it comes from under which category are you filing your complaint as a woman as a black person right and it, of course, that's not anyone's lived reality. And, but then we are sort of formed by the law in those ways. So my coming out story is I had this moment of realizing, oh, oh, I'm queer. That's what it is. And literally in the same moment, I had a moment of, oh, oh, I get what the Gospels are about. I'm going to be a priest. Of course. How could you not be about that? And what I remember feeling, I was 17, is, and it was Atlanta, is I felt in my body for the first time. And I'm not sure I would have ever said before I wasn't. You know, but it, it was that all those pieces... They're not pieces even, right? They're all, th someone's told me they are. So yeah, I very much resonate with the way you answer that. Azariah, how do you experience that? So what was fascinating, I, um, today I had an appointment and there was a, a little card that we had to fill in. And so the card said, how do you identify yourself? Woman, including trans woman, man, including trans man, um, non-binary, um, and and it was it was lovely to to tick two of those um categories and 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 not feel bound to just the one 
Um, I, um, I am dyslexic and dyspraxic. And so, uh, so being neurodiverse, I have a different lens through which I understand the world and see the world and engage and interact with it. Uh, and, and yet it's difficult, as you say, to divide because uh, when I was in a lot of white spaces as a preacher, people say, why are you such a breath of fresh air? You have such a novel approach. But, you know, <laughs> is that coming from my heritage, my nature, my nurture? Is that coming from my early experiences in Pentecostalism? Is that coming from the fact that I'm wired differently? You know, and so actually I don't fit the, the sort of the academic template as readily. Um, and so those questions become just theoretical and I'm just living and breathing and moving and, and having my being within the world I find myself in. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's so dangerous to try and to try and separate those parts of yourself. And when I was younger, I would have a terrible time. I, don't, I remember uh, an old girlfriend of mine organised a surprise party for me and she brought together different parts of my life. So some black friends and family, some white church friends, and I just didn't know who to be, what voice to use, how to be. And so I ended up being surprised, being shocked, being traumatised and hiding for most of the event. And... Uh... <laughs> Is there something... Is there something about that, that that kind of gives you freedom, though, when you just say, actually, I don't have to, I don't have to be any of these people. And actually, if there is a kind of, because I find that in terms of ministry, that actually who I am walking around in clerics is who I am, but it's not who I am with other friends who I have very different relationship with. And I used to find that divide difficult. And I'm just like, actually, they're both me. And if other people find that weird, that's on them. But I feel a sense of integrity now, you know, and that's, that's okay. Drell, will you tell us about the subtitle to your book, The Famine of Grace? And actually, sorry, The Church in the Famine of Grace might be important. Sure. Yeah, tell us about that. Sure, sure. I really struggled to find what I wanted to call this book because it, it went through about six different titles and until I settled, I couldn't really write it. And that was quite a problem. Um, and in many ways, the subtitle could have been the title, I think, really, and would have been a good one and would have been fine. Um, I think what I became really aware of when I was writing was that what I was kind of experiencing as I did some of the research for the book was not just trauma, but was was a kind of spiritual and theological famine that I, I see in people. And I think when I'm in black British queer spaces, that's what, I, that's what it feels like. It, it feels like I'm in some kind of exile where people are in famine um, having been denied soul food, really, I think, you know? Um, and it's not that... It's not that that famine makes them, um, you know, less close to God or, or in any way um, faulty as people, but there is a hunger that I hear expressed and a thirst that I can kind of sense and discern when I'm around other, other black queer people. Um, and it is a famine that the church is the cause of. Um, and it's a word that I think just captures for me what I feel when I'm in those spaces um, more than anything else. And it was really kind of what really stuck, made that stick for me was watching um, It's a Sin, which was on Channel 4 um, not all that long ago. 
um, about young people during the AIDS um, epidemic, and it was by Russell T. Davies. And it was basically just documenting the lives of these different characters and how their lives were impacted um, by going through this time. And in particular, I was, I was kind of taken in by Roscoe, this um, black gay character who was sent out into the wilderness, into exile by his family at the very beginning um, of It's a Sin. And his family were basically trying to not exercise him, but have prayers about his gayness, if you like, around the dining table. Um, and he storms in and basically just says to him, like, I'm leaving, I'm out. And he goes, and that's basically like one of the opening scenes of It's a Sin. And it did make me think about that sense of exile that many of us feel from the communities in which we should have found and known belonging, welcome, hospitality, love. Um, and the language of that, of that series, It's a Sin, in 2021, made me realise how deep theological language weds itself into um, the language of the queer community. You know, it's very deliberate language. I'm curious as well, in terms of um, famine, about um, thinking about diet. So I'm thinking, mm. um, to what extent is if you're given something that isn't palatable to you, are you also in a state of famine or a state of starvation? Because the things that you're given um, just can't be processed by your particular body. Um, you know, is is that something at play as well in some of this? That we're force-fed something 100%. which doesn't doesn't work for us. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of queer Christians have to do, particularly, you know, black and brown queer Christians, is the work of deconstruction. You know, um, we have to we have to take the kind of white supremacist, you know, misogynistic, hierarchical, um, capitalist patriarchal Christianity that we are taught and given and vomit it up, I think. And that is painful work because we have to let go of a lot of what might feel precious to us, but that we know we can't exist within, right? That actually, we, we have to let go of it if we want to find Jesus at the heart of this church. <laughs> um, because Jesus has been draped in so much that is poisonous and toxic to us and to our spiritualities and to our souls. Um, and that is a work of deconstruction that some people don't have to do because actually the the white supremacist patriarchal version of Christianity works for them, or they think it does, you know? Um, and of course, it's not Christianity at all when you really begin to unpack it. Um, but one of the reasons I think the church struggles to change is because actually the church as it is works for a lot of folk, you know? And that's something that we don't often talk about, that actually the system isn't broken for everyone. <laughs> Well, and also, I mean, part of what a book like this is about is is your faith in the church, right? So I, I as an, I feel like as an old priest, I've watched a lot of my colleagues reject the church and Jesus because they cannot separate it from all the systems that you've just described, right? As the, the heteropatriarchal uh, white supremacist Jesus is Jesus, right? And is the church. Um, and in my experience, these are, I'm talking about white men who then um, put it all down and it's, I wonder that they've lost Jesus to these systems in the same way that they sort of lost themselves in these in these systems. Um, so what's very and I think I think queer people are in the same way that queer people are um, bringing back marriage <laughs> or saving it. Um, I think in some ways queer people and people of color are kind of bringing back Jesus, like bringing back the church in a and have a lot of faith in it in a way that that I'm not sure the larger culture does. Have you have you had any experience of that? Definitely. Definitely, um, in lots of ways. And I was just thinking, as you said that, that what has helped me make that differentiation, you know, was the black 
female body of my grandmother. Like, actually, in her was embodied the purest version of Christianity I've ever experienced. And there, in her life, I saw someone for whom, you know, Jesus worked. You know, the gospel made sense. And if I didn't have that, I think I would struggle then to differentiate the institution from the person of Jesus. And he was, you know, their relationship was so real and so tangible. It was almost scary at times because she would be praying and her prayers were just literally her whispering into the ear of the Lord. And that was not a joke for her. And I could see it. And I think, and I think for a lot of people, it is, it is often black women who, who embody that for us. Um, and I've even heard, you know, white clergy colleagues of mine say the same thing about their older black, often Windrush generation parishioners, that actually in them they see a faith that they don't see elsewhere. Um, and that restores something in them of their, their own conviction in the truth of the gospel and in, in the validity of, of the church and of ministry. Um, so I've seen both. You know, I've seen people who find a way through and who just walk away because the two become also, one. Also, in terms of thinking about um, two becoming one, there is, uh, when I first encountered you, I saw you um, on a brochure, on an ad- advert for um, a London-based, quite radical, um, communitarian um, network. And and I, I sort of looked you up on the basis of that, on the basis of a friend saying, there's an incredible Methodist um, who's writing this great blog, you should check him out. And I'm wondering, because... In the conversation with you, it was, I was fascinated to hear how you navigated the tension between being in a space which is radical and in some ways anti-institutional uh, and yet holding the tenets of an institution which some can perceive to uphold the status quo, which, you know, that system that isn't break, broken for everybody, which in turn breaks things for others <laughs> and breaks others. So I'm wondering, how do you, how do you navigate the tension of being in the different mm. thought spaces, perhaps, or um, holding different worldviews? I think it's really tough. I mean, there's a sense in which I think, and I've been reflecting, reflecting on this a lot recently, in which I think all of us, all of us who stay in the church in terms of, um, in an official capacity as, as clergy or as lay folk who have authorised ministry, I think we are always, and this is probably controversial and could be debated, but I think whether we like it or not, we're always complicit in the institution's sin. And I think it's, it's, there's no way to kind of completely separate yourself from that, no matter the work you're doing to call it out, and no matter how much you're trying to be a stoke in the wheel, wheel, we all benefit, you know. And I think it is a really difficult thing to navigate. I, I'm aware that as a male body and a cisgendered male body in the church, you know, as someone who wears a cassock and who some people call father, that actually I do uphold, whether I like it or not, notions of patriarchy and maleness in terms of ideas of the priesthood, right? And whether I like that or not, and no matter how much I might try to queer that, um, that's a reality. And so when I'm in spaces, whether they be black activists or, um, you know, black queer folk who are no longer in the church, I'm always quite mindful of the fact that no matter how progressive and liberal I might be and how justice-focused I might feel, I do have to realise that I am part of the institution and therefore will always be part of the problem. Thank you so much, Darrell. And um, I know one of your... um uh, heroes that I see you quote a bit is um, James Baldwin and I just wonder if you've got a um, a favourite James Baldwin quote or is there something about his life which uh, uh, which has inspired your own he seems to be one of your heroes when I look at social media he, he's, a, he's a regular go-to 
James Baldwin saved my life, and I really don't say it as a as a joke. Like for me, if I had known that someone like him existed when I was fifteen, you know, just as I was coming aware to the fact that I wasn't straight and that life was going to look very different to the life that I have now, if I had known that someone like James Baldwin was around in this world before me, that whole process would have been so much smoother. And when I say that he saved my life, what I mean is that he gave me a model um, of how to be you know, black, gay, and the person of faith. I mean, one of the things that annoys me is lots of people kind of, I mean, try to try to use James Baldwin's image, um, you know, to critique the church without realising just how much the church gave him. And who forget that actually we wouldn't have James Baldwin, you know, just in the same way that we wouldn't have so many, almost all of the other um, huge um, black role models that we, we look back to, if it wasn't for the church. And what... I've never found any evidence for is James Baldwin turning his back on Jesus Christ. There's lots of him critiquing Christianity, critiquing the church. And I do wish sometimes people would, would allow him to at least, you know, um, hold on to his, his love and his adoration of Jesus because it's in everything, you know. And he knew the scriptural text so deeply because he was a preacher. Um, but he knew the church well enough to know that he couldn't remain within it. And if I had a favourite quote, I don't know where it's from, it's from one of his essays where he... He essentially says that there was a time for him and that there's a time for all of us when God stops being synonymous with safety. And for me, that just cuts to the core of, of what I think I felt in terms of coming out, um, what it was like to be a child brought up by neither of my parents, what it was like to be a child growing up in West London where lots of my school friends were suddenly no longer in the classroom because they were stabbed or shot. You know, that, that sense of realising, oh, no amount of prayer, no amount of going to church, no amount of Christian faith can save me from the brutality of life. And that is something that I think Baldwin taught me um, so early on, because I can, I can remember that moment when God was no longer synonymous for safety. And actually, you have to work out what this God thing means and who God is going to be for you. Um, and that's when you start perhaps looking at the cross in a particular light um, and making your own sense of it if you do. Azariah, is there someone like that for you? Well, you know, I was, I've, I've been thinking about that. Um, a contemporary hero of mine is actually Winnie, your presiding bishop, Michael Curry. Um, so he is a hero of mine in that he seems to be able to hold some of the sort of black radical side of the civil rights movement um, together with an institution which I'm sure not everyone is delighted that he is um, in the position that he is. And he manages to do it with grace, with a smile, with courage and with directness when he needs it. Um, so he's a contemporary um, uh, hero of mine. How about you, Winnie? Yeah, he's the real deal. Um, you know, I rem there's so many, but I remember reading Audre Lorde for the first time. Seven 17 was a big year for me. I was 17. Um, and what I, re what I re remember about it, and I still, it's still kind of a shocking idea, but it's, it's so how our, most of our lives live, or, or how we understand ourselves is, I didn't know you could write about that. I remember thinking, I didn't know you could write about that, that you could, you know, that she was, I think I read the cancer journals first. So she's talking about her black, sick, queer body dying. And there were these things she was saying that I, I didn't know you could say and that you could publish and you could read. And it was basically saying, I didn't know I could exist, right, is, is what I would say. And um, it changed my life. 
Could you introduce her to us, um, the listeners that haven't heard of Audrey Lord? You know, I don't know. I, I probably can't do it well enough. Um, Caribbean woman, New York City, um, grew up in the city. Um, and from what I can tell, was just always herself. Again, I, I read people sometimes and I wonder who ever told them they could, how did they know? You know, I have no idea how she figured it out. And I've read everything she's written um, and, you know, wrote herself as a dyke in the 50s, you know, um, out with white feminists, critiqued the civil rights movement for its lack of space for women, just described her own life as, as a poet and writer and artist and a person like living life, honestly, beautifully, powerfully. But as far as I know, was not at all religious, probably had a very strong critique of religion is my guess. But I don't remember her writing much about it. And I encountered it, and I'm sure so, it was assigned in a class, and it changed my life. That's wonderful. I only know the essay, The Master's Schools Cannot Dismantle the Master's House, which I guess goes back to what you're talking about, Jarrell, that we are part of institutions. You know, we, we can't escape them when we benefit from them. And the tools that they give us aren't going to be the tools that we need to to effectively find our own liberation and that for others as well. So, uh, yes, this is, uh, uh, th- th- this is well, good stuff. But this is fascinating, Azariah. Is- but this idea that the, the master's tool yep. cannot ma- dismantle the master's house, right? Which is Audre Lorde. Um, but here we are in the church, all of us. And what about those things that come through the institution? Like, h- how do we make them not the master's tools, right? And so I'm thinking very specifically about Mary, the mother of God, right? Um, I'll just let y'all talk about that because I'm in Atlanta. I can say that now. I think Mary's a really fascinating character because for me, she is the most rad, you know, model for me of, you know, of, of priesthood, I think, as well. That um, I'm part of a, a group called the Sodality of Mary, and it's a group of Anglican priests, um, also deacons and people discerning priesthood. Um, but the, the thing we often talk about is being priest of the Magnificat, and that's our kind of, you know, our strapline, if you like. Um, and the reason I can buy that is because it, it separates Mary from this very pious, pure kind of, almost someone who's drained of her radical edge, right? But to be a priest of the Magnificat ties us into Mary's radical um, edge. And I love that because I think, when I think about how, how do we use the tools that the institution gives us to help in, in terms of the work of dismantling and, and disrupting the waters, disturbing the waters, one of the things for me is holding priesthood very lightly, and holding that image and holding the power that comes with that, with that ministry, um, extremely lightly. And and I think that's something that, you know, we have enough models of people who don't do that well. And we've had enough models of people who haven't done that well throughout throughout history. Um, but that's a, that's a tough one as well in terms of working out what that looks like um, in day-to-day life. And also inhabiting priestly ministry authentically. You know, um, what does it mean for me to be my black queer self with integrity, um, with openness, with vulnerability in this institution? And I think if you can model some level of honesty and integrity, then you allow other people to do that. And I think that is what will help dismantle some of the really unhelpful structures and systems we have in place is more honesty, more integrity and more vulnerability from those who are in power. Um, you know, and I'm just wondering where would you place yourself ministerially now? So we've spoken about some of the Methodism, but you know, what's your current pulpit? Where is your altar? 
where you're sharing this radical thinking um, through uh, pedestrian liturgy, perhaps, or... You know, um, so I'm... I'm at St. Botolph's um, without Allgate, which is a church on the threshold of the city of London and the East End. So a really fascinating place to be. We have an amazing history. So we have um, in the past had people like Malcolm Johnson, who was the first openly gay priest in the Church of England, I think, at least in the Diocese of London. Um, he founded LGCM um, in St. Botolph's, which is the lesbian and gay Christian movement. Um, and that was kicked out of our church by um, one of the bishops of London, I think it was Graham Leonard, who was a very traditionalist, conservative bishop. Um, and as the vice chair of the current embodiment of LGCM, it's really interesting to be at St. Bottles because in a way we've come back. You know, I'm the vice chair of One Body, One Faith, which is um, the modern day LGCM. And there's something quite interesting about that. And I met Malcolm Johnson the other day and we, we had a really fascinating conversation but we also had Ken Leach, who was another um, great Anglo-Catholic socialist priest, um, an amazing person in terms of his prophetic writing. You know, he wrote about, you know, the area that I'm in in terms of Aldgate and the East End and everything he said, both about the direction that Anglo-Catholicism would go in, but also what the East End would become like, have been spot on. And there's something very powerful about being in this space as a black queer body that, you know, both Malcolm and Ken made it possible for someone like me to inhabit this space, really. Um, so that's where I am, St. Bottles in Aldgate, and it's a, it's a really fascinating place to be. I heard uh, an interesting conversation the other day which was saying that you can't deconstruct your faith fully without decolonizing your faith. And, and I'm curious what, what you think about that. So, so a space has been made for you, but in terms of the colonial heritage within our institution, what more needs to be done and what part do you feel you're playing within that? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with that. I think the two do go hand in hand, right? And if you're committed to one, then the other just makes sense because they're two sides of the same coin, I think. Um, I think for me, there's a way in which as soon as I began... So my, my real area is church history and that's, that's what I love and it's what I want to do with my life. Basically, I love reading church history and I want to write in that area. Um, but the benefit of studying the history of the church fully and for oneself is that I think I've, I've kind of done some of the decolonizing work alongside that because I'm reading, you know, people like Tertullian and Origen and some of the Desert Fathers and Mothers um, as Africans, which is not the way that they were taught to me. And I'm able to do that now and read them um, within their kind of original context and think, you know, when you read a homily, a sermon by Origen, and you think of black preaching today, when you read him with that voice, and you might not have preached like that, but when you read him with that voice, you do get something different out of the text. Um, and I think there's something really freeing in terms of actually saying, you know, there's, there's a sense in which I look back at those texts now with a sense of ownership, because actually Origen is my brother, Mary of Egypt is my sister, these people are my kin, right? Um, there's something very freeing about that. And so for me, I would say part of what I want to do in terms of helping other people decolonize their faith is take that accurate history to people in the pews and to people in the streets and say, actually, this is what Christianity is. Um, and this is the earliest version of Christianity. You know, 600 years before Augustine came to Canterbury, <laughs> these people were writing. Um, that's a huge amount of time. Yeah, you know, my family is from, from India, from Kerala, and we're from the Syrian Orthodox Church. And 
a, a big part of my own process has been is it as the child of immigrants you kind of move away from the tradition of your parents and it's quite conservative and really culturally bound and caste bound in ways that are deeply problematic but we're also the church of Ephraim and you know we the Syrian church is the church that that you know that is in partnership with with what becomes the Celtic movements and and reading that external to um, to colonialism which is difficult um, right uh, is a is a reset of even the geography of Christianity right that my grandmother would have understood very well that this was a faith of her people and of her part of the world but from the same tradition learning it in Dallas Texas um, you know I hear uh, a faith of colonialism right and I, I so what a power I'm so aware of what a powerful thing it is in my life to have reclaimed that tradition on my own terms external to the institution and what a powerful thing to bring um, to the church in the West, um, Egypt and Ethiopia. And that's the thing, I think, is we often, you know, for me, it's not just about the origins, but it's also about what those traditions have preserved as well. You know, that actually the, what they call the Oriental Orthodox churches have preserved so much that makes so much of the scholarship that we have here possible. And there's also a lack of acknowledgement, I think, not just in terms of origin, but in how um, what has been preserved makes our life, you know, the life of the Western church possible. I mean, this is such an incredible conversation. For me, when I began to do my deconstruction of uh, a conservatism, um, what happened was that the only place I could go that I knew about was, was Celtic Christianity. And so getting the stuff from Iona or Northumbria um, in the UK and getting their prayer books and thinking gosh, this is really free. Isn't it a shame that there isn't a, a, a black heritage that I can draw on? And, uh, and just being completely cut off and divorced from that. And I just wonder, what did it do to you, Jarrell, to actually recognise that, that there were these roots which honoured um, your heritage, your kin, as you say? H- how did that help you to, to reconnect? I think it's funny, my first kind of response to that awareness was one of anger, actually. I was like, you know, I spent three years studying theology um, at Wesley House in Cambridge and then studied at Cardiff University and no one ever mentioned how important Africa was to the faith that I was studying. Um, And that angered me, I think, that I had created this kind of chasm between me and this faith and had kind of taken on the criticisms that I was, you know, following the white man's religion. And I thought that that was true for a long time. Um, and I'm amazed that kind of the amount of pushback there is in the academy that I find now as a scholar trying to do this work from those who really want to protect, particularly Celtic Christianity, from its African heritage. And what's funny to me is, I mean, there was an article the other day in the Church Times about a window in Canterbury Cathedral, I think it was, um, that was from um, some Celtic um, time and some, some different area that was proven to be um, the lapis lazuli, the blue colour from this window was proven to have come from um, Africa and from Egypt. And so as much as we try to deny it, these things keep popping up and proving themselves. There was a, a manuscript found in Ireland um, with papyrus in its cover. Papyrus doesn't grow in Ireland. Um, and the, the Coptic binding of this book, it was an 8th century Psalter, um, pointed the finger directly to North Africa. And yet so many people kind of have a very clear narrative of how Christianity was taken to Ireland. Um, and actually, I'm not sure that many people acknowledge that the, the Christianity that was taken was an African version of monasticism. Um, I've, I've really, really loved this conversation. I want to pop back to the term grace and 
Winnie, you've spoken about dogs. Jarrell, you have a lovely dog um, that often appears in your social media. How do your animals experience grace from you? Gosh, well, today I came home and Seb had eaten what was left of um, some birthday cake and also thrown over lots of things from the dining table. <laughs> and I'm not sure it was a gracious moment. But I think, I don't know, I, think they, I hope that they know that they are parts of our lives. I think they know that they're loved, I hope, you know. I try to take Seb everywhere, including church. Um, and I think... It, <laughs> turning the question around in a, in a way that actually Seb, my dog, is a massive means of grace for other people. I mean, in this community, you know, so many of our friends in need in this area, you know, ask, even today, I was, I was going to a shop and um, one of the local people said to me, you know, where's Sebastian? And, and they care about him, you know, and I love that. Um, and it's genuine. You know, in a move like this, we have Springer Doodles. There are two of them and they're getting old. Um, and you know how dogs kind of mirror us um, this move has been hard for them. They are demonstrating to me my own emotional state, which I find really, really useful. And I want so much to care for them, you know, and it, grace is the right word. How about you? Do you have do you have dogs? I think one day a hypoallergenic dog would be uh, would be glorious, um, but one I could give back. Well, I don't know if there's, any, if there's any such thing as a part-time dog, but my dogs are hypoallergenic. So you could get Springer Doodles, Azariah. Full-time Springer Doodles. I think your, your children would be on my side for that one. Terrell, thank you so much for this conversation. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really great to speak to you. That's been wonderful. Thank you again. Uh, and thank you to Rosie, our producer. Thank you to all of those who listen and share this as well. Um, so more people are picking up the Good Race uh, podcast and we're delighted. So, uh, so thank you, friends. We appreciate you all. Azariah France-Williams and Winnie Varghese were talking to Jarrell Robinson-Brown. Randolph Matthews composed the music. Grace was produced by me, Rosie Dawson. You can find more episodes from heartedge.org or from Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please leave a comment, subscribe and share Grace with your friends. I